Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, FP's economics podcast. Every week we take a couple of data points, we use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor, with you actually this week in the Sauerland, which is a, a region of western Germany, hilly region where my in-laws live. It happens to be actually one of the places from which uh, many Christmas trees are harvested, so appropriate place to be this week. Adam Tooze, as always, is with us, FP's economics columnist and also Columbia University professor, as usual, in New York. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. So we are recording and releasing this episode just before the end of 2022. So we thought we would dedicate the conversation to 2023, specifically to economic stories that you ought to be paying attention to in the year ahead that you might not be thinking about yet but you may be thinking about soon. So that's basically a slight tweak on what we're usually doing here. So, you know, we're usually digging into data to figure out what might be about to happen. And so we're just going to try taking a longer time horizon here. So Adam, you flagged several issues that we should talk about. The first one is the downturn in U.S. housing. That got me wondering... What exactly has triggered the drop-off that we've already seen, because there has been a measurable drop-off, and how, how much more could it be expected to drop from here? I guess maybe you could discuss whether there are ways of measuring whether housing is, is overpriced objectively. Yeah, this is, I think, something to watch for next year. The, the, what's triggered, I think, is pretty clear, which is that the Fed has hiked interest rates and mortgage rates have responded particularly sensitively, so at their peak in late November, I think it was, mortgage rates in the US had doubled from 35 to 7% on a fixed rate 30-year mortgage, the kind of classic US mortgage. They're slightly off those peaks now down to 625 but nevertheless, it's a huge jump um, over a 12-month period, um, which is the time this has happened in. Um, it's, a, it's the only period in which interest rates have risen more dramatically than this in American history any time recently is during the Volcker shock between 79 and 81. So this is a, it's a pretty severe discontinuity. Um, and it's affecting, you know, one of the biggest asset classes, not just in the US, but in the entire world. And US real estate makes up about 20% of global real estate values, and they are about 68% of real assets worldwide. So we're talking about a really major shock to what is, you know, an asset class that is about 15% of global real assets. This is this is big, big news. Um, there's an interesting paper from Enrique Martinez-Garcia um, at the Dallas Fed, who who took on precisely your question, you know, Cam, you know, how bad could this get? How much could this fall by? And what he does is to look at the trajectory of housing prices over the recent cycle. And it's really dramatic between 2013 and 2022, US 
house prices in real terms has risen by more than 60%, by 61%. And a very large amount of that surge has come really in the between the first quarter of 2020 and the second quarter of 2022. And about 40% of that surge has happened in that period. So about 20, 25% odd increase. And so I think that's the way in which we, we get a, you know, we get a handle on, on, you know, what the worst case scenario might be. And, and, you know, if one imagines most of the pandemic hype being unraveled, you could be looking at a price shock of, you know, 20%, maybe that would be a, a really very severe hit to this huge pile of, of assets. We're talking trillions of dollars in value here. The thing about the housing market is it really is a market with very flexible supply and demand. And so one of the reasons why I think most analysts think we're unlikely to find ourselves in the 20% scenario is that as prices fall, what happens is that people just postpone the moment of their sale of a house. And so supply falls quite rapidly in line with falling demand um, driven by the by the rising interest rates. And so the market does equilibrate. So many analysts think an adjustment in the you know in the order of perhaps five to ten percent is is more realistic. Um, it could be much more severe in the hotspots of the U.S. housing market, in places like Austin, Texas, or Phoenix, Arizona. All of these fashionable, you know, what used to be regarded as second tier cities, um, which have been just super hot, fashionable locations for people leaving, notably Silicon Valley, but also but also the East Coast. It's also worth saying this is you know a rather American view of the world that um, this interest rate squeeze is happening globally. And in fact, in the US, it's relatively slow to unfold because um, interest rates in the US tend to be fixed over long periods of time, whereas in Europe, they tend to be slightly more flexible. And there is good reason, I think, to be concerned about the development of the most overheated European real estate market. So that would be places like Amsterdam, Munich, Zurich, um, super desirable locations with limited housing supply, where I think again you would be one would one you know one would be anticipating stagnation and and probably um, some some fall in prices in the coming year. There too, of course, the same logic will operate in that as as the market cools, people will do everything they possibly can to avoid selling um, into a market like that. So, if we were to look at the effects on the United States specifically, I mean, what are the knock on? effects of this kind of downturn on the real economy in the US. I mean, might Americans who relied on their houses as a primary form of investment, like many Americans do, might they have to delay their retirement, just for example? And would that affect the overall labor market? On the other hand, I could imagine that a downturn would make it easier for people to sort of get that first step on the housing ladder, you know, young people who may have otherwise been priced out. So maybe that's a positive thing. So what is the uh, overall effect on the real economy? It's a really big deal for sure. I mean, there used to be a saying that the the housing market, the real estate market is the business cycle in the US. That That's, you know, essentially what drives the ups and downs of the economy that we follow in such minute detail is in fact, this one big market because it's so large as an asset class and so much leverage is piled on it. Um, to think about the effects on the real economy, I think there's probably two dimensions of this, which are sort of interestingly contrasted. So one is a dimension of change where you have a relatively small component of overall economic activity, but that, that swings wildly, and by means of those swings exerts an impact on the American economy. And the other dimension of this, the other, the other dimension of this is a huge aggregate, 
which wings more modestly, but nevertheless, given its real size, has a huge impact. So the, the small thing that, that fluctuates wildly is um, new construction of housing. So one element of the story of the business cycle from the real estate market is that obviously when the real estate market is booming, when rents are rocketing ahead, as they have recently, a lot of people decide it's a good time to build housing, notably multi-family units. And um, this is what was once upon a time when America was a rapidly growing economy and used to build a lot of houses, which it no longer really does. But it used to be a very significant element of GDP. It peaked at about 7% of GDP construction by itself. It's now down to around 4%, so you know a third or more less than it used to be as a share. But the thing about it is it still swings like a yo-yo. It's really one of the bits of the economy that just bounces up and down like crazy. So if you look at new mortgage applications, um, new mortgage applications in the third quarter of 2022, which are obviously a big driver of demand, are down 47% year on year. I mean, just an absolutely gigantic shift or single family home building permits are down 30% year on year. The mood amongst house home builders is absolutely catastrophic right now, right? Everyone knows that a crisis is coming. So this small aggregate, which is like 4% of GDP, is swinging by as much as 30 to 40%, which adds up to like a 1% swing in overall GDP from just this one sector. So how much is that? Well, US GDP is $23 trillion. So 1% is $230 billion in a 12-month period, right, swinging one way to the next. So that's as big as any government stimulus program other than the flat-out emergency stimulus programs of 2020. So the CHIPS Act or the Infrastructure Act or or the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, none of them uh, account for a $230 billion swing. Um, and that's just coming from the, you know, the the the, the oscillation in in mood within this relatively small but highly volatile sector. Now, take the other component, which is the one that you were alluding to, which is the so-called wealth effect. So, as household, you know, housing is for the vast majority of households their principal store of wealth, and as that fluctuates in value, it affects people's moods and their willingness to spend. The vast majority of spending is, of course, affected by incomes rather than wealth. But at the margin, there is some spending which will be induced by wealth effects. And this is a huge aggregate. So this isn't 4% of GDP. This is 75% of GDP we're talking about here. So personal consumption expenditure is about $17.8 trillion. So when the Dallas Fed tells us that it thinks a severe shock to the real estate market could reduce um, personal consumption expenditure between 0.5 and 0.7%, you might shrug and think, well, that's not very much, except that it's on $17.8 trillion. So in fact, it amounts to another 100 to $150 billion hit. So if you added the investment effect of this from the construction sector to the consumption side effect, all of a sudden, you're looking at a potential swing in a sort of negative, a negative shock, you know, that could easily be $300 billion which is a, you know, in the GDP is huge. It doesn't fluctuate by large percentage points, even in a giant recession, like a very bad one, like, you know, 2008, it goes down by a couple of percentage points. So these kind of numbers headed in the wrong direction are really bad news. And that's, that's what we're worried about. Um, it's, a, it's a major drag on economic growth if we, had this kind of, if we had this kind of recession in the real estate sector. I did not know that construction was so volatile. I know in the past when we've talked about volatile kind of sectors, you always mentioned the role of insurance. Do like housing construction firms yeah. have insurance for this kind of thing? 
Well, as unemployment insurance is for this kind of sector, right? These are the people who actually have to draw on unemployment insurance because their jobs come and go and they boom and then, you know, there's huge supply bottlenecks and then they don't. But it's a notoriously fragile sector and um, absolutely just absolutely. This is, you know, they are the the tail being wagged by the dog in this particular case. And man, does it swing. Like it really is. It's hyper volatile. Yeah. So I also wanted to ask about the broader financial implications here. You mentioned just how big an asset class U.S. housing is. And yeah, that got me wondering if you could unpack that a bit more. I mean, what broader role exactly do U.S. housing assets play in international financial markets? So, I mean, what are exactly the broader implications here internationally of a downturn specifically in U.S. housing? Yeah, housing is crucial to finance because for the vast majority of people, it's the only readily available form of collateral on the basis of which, you know, regular folks can borrow and they can borrow significant amounts, three times their income. Like, you know, that's that's a lot of leverage that you can pile on this. Mm-hmm. So it's very significant. And we're talking about in the US case, about $13 trillion of mortgages outstanding. So that's more than all corporate debt. If you add up all of the bonds, not the shares, but the bonds issued by corporate America, the 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 housing mortgage sector is larger than that and it's made up of millions of small creditors who've borrowed right so it's a it's a huge piece of the financial system and it is one historically if it's true that real estate was or is the the business cycle it's also true that real estate is pivotal to most major financial crises and in the current situation this year as the volume of mortgage applications has fallen by 47%. As you'd imagine, the businesses which make money from issuing mortgages have suffered a complete collapse in business. And those are the non-bank mortgage lenders, which are really a major part now of the modern American mortgage system. So it's uh, uh, um, financial agencies, which essentially consist to issue mortgages to people, and then they sell, they package the mortgages and sell them on into a supply chain of you know institutional finance. And we've already seen a, a couple of bankruptcies in that sector this year. So First Guarantee Mortgage Company and a thing called Sprout Mortgage, mortgage uh, both went under this year. And there's a, there's a number of other names that are on the watch list going into next year. And so any talk about you know a crisis in the American mortgage financial system is prone to have people on edge a little bit, right? Because we all remember 2008. Is, is that what we're headed towards? I think it's the prevalent consensus, and one should you know all of always say this kind of thing with a note of caution in one's voice, given, given the track record, but the prevalent consensus right now, having done a kind of gut check and patted ourselves down and thought about all of the risks is that this doesn't feel like 2006, seven, you know, eight, even, even our level of complacency doesn't feel quite the same as that level of complacency. I mean, why, why is it different? Because private label mortgage backed securities, which were at the center of the crisis in the past are a shadow of what they used to be mortgage lending by foreign banks uh, who were directly involved in the American mortgage system before 2008 is, is much reduced. Um, and there has been a huge and sort of dramatic shift, uh, very much under the radar and kind of astonishing. But essentially, there's been a, I mean, you can't say it any different. There's been a nationalization of the American mortgage market, which what by which I mean that the government-sponsored enterprises, the GSEs, the, the government-backed mortgage backstops, so this is Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, have taken on an even larger share of the American mortgage market than they did before. So before the crisis, they had about 40% of the market. So this is when the mortgages are packaged into, into securities. 
and then, as it were, they're underwritten and then reissued. And currently, 67% of the outstanding volume of mortgages in the United States, so two-thirds, are part of the GSE Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac mortgage program. So of the financial assets piled on the largest asset class in the world, or one of the largest, which is American real estate, so this $13 trillion pile, two-thirds of it is essentially government sponsors has a, a government guarantee. And, and this is the flywheel of the US economy, as we've been saying. So there's a huge element here of government support for what we think of as the core of private capitalism, namely property ownership, and in this case, private property ownership. And that gives a kind of an underlay of security to the system, which it has never had to this extent. And it is preeminently those kind of bonds, GSE-backed mortgage bonds that foreign investors buy now when they're in the business of investing in American real estate. It's difficult to avoid the class altogether because it's such a significant share of overall global assets. But if you want the safest version of it, which of course doesn't yield very much more than government bonds do either, but nevertheless yields a bit more, then what you hold is GSE, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac sponsored American mortgage-backed securities. And they are, they ought to be, you know, for heaven's sake, if they're not, you've really got a ton of other problems. Um, if, if these aren't safe, then really nothing is very safe. Um, and so those are the kind of assets that people will be holding. But just so I understand, I mean, you said there was less of a proliferation of some of the riskier mortgage-backed yes. securities um, that were sort of at the heart of the last crisis. Yeah. Why is that exactly? Is that have they been regulated out of uh, out of business in a way, or is this the market learning from the past and the sort of market is taking care of those risky securities, those derivatives that everyone used to talk about? I think they're just toxic. Yeah, I mean, you know, no one wants to be in that business if they can avoid it. Like it's uh, there is really, I think, a learning effect here. Yeah, mm. that's the that's the the key. Got it. We have two other 2023 stories that we want to address, but I think we should take a break here and we'll be back in a second to address those other stories. Okay, we are back. We just talked about the U.S. housing market, but there are two other 2023 stories we wanted to put on your radars So the second issue that you flagged, Adam, as a potentially big economic story in 2023 were some recent moves made by the Bank of Japan. Essentially, this shift consisted of changes that the Bank of Japan made to its yield curve control. That is a technical term that I was hoping you could unpack for us, Adam. And also, maybe you could tell us what exactly is at stake in what the Bank of Japan, that's an institution that most of us are probably not usually thinking about. I mean, what's really at stake in what decisions it's making about its, again, its yield curve control? Yeah, so this is all about the bond market. So we're not talking about equities, shares um, issued by companies or mortgage debt that we were talking about just a minute ago, um, which are secured on houses. We're talking about IOUs, government IOUs, um, which have a fixed interest coupon on them. So you give me $100 and I promise to pay you 5%, or more precisely, I promise to pay you $5 for 10 years, for instance, per year, and then I'll pay you $100 back at the end of the 10-year period. Now, if central banks or other purchasers buy these IOUs for more or less than the $100, then the effective interest rate on the asset they've purchased, if you buy it for less than $100, 
is greater than the coupon, the five percent implied by the five dollar payment, because you're getting a five dollar income stream for less than a hundred dollars. Or if they're in demand and their price goes up, then that's reflected in a, a fall in the effective interest rate because you're paying more to get the five dollar income stream, and so the so called yield goes down. Now, central banks around the world have been dipping into bond markets now around the world since 2008, in Europe since 2015 on a large scale, in the US since the financial crisis and then repeatedly since in so-called unconventional monetary policy, where you buy bonds, the central banks buy bonds and they give banks cash in exchange for them. And the idea is you drive the yield, the interest rate down because you drive the price of the bond up. So the coupon equates to a lower interest rate. And on the other hand, you fill the banks with cash and altogether you hope that investors will go looking for other assets, other assets which where the market is not crowded by government purchasing, where they will achieve higher yield and as a result stimulate investment in the rest of the economy. So this is the basic logic of as what we know as quantitative easing or unconventional monetary policy. And the Bank of Japan is not the biggest central bank, but it is and has been since the 1990s the forerunner of unconventional monetary policy. It has been the progenitor of this entire system, and it has been the most radically pragmatic and experimental of all of the central banks. The story goes all the way back to the 1990s when Japan had a major financial crisis. They slipped into a deflation mode. Uh, it started in real estate in Japan as well. And the Bank of Japan uh, was made independent, first of all, in 1998. And then in 1999, adopted the first zero interest rate policy. And when that wasn't enough, in 2001, it became the first central bank to adopt quantitative easing. In other words, actively going into the bond market and buying. Since then, since 2008, everyone else followed them. And the Japanese continued to launch a, you know, a really dramatic push to try and push Japanese inflation above 2%. This is all the old world where inflation was the issue. Not enough inflation was the issue. And so you did everything possible to drive. And the Bank of Japan really just did everything possible. And um, so it introduced negative interest rates. It was the first central bank to do that, which is where you penalize people for putting money in the bank by charging them a fee. You don't offer them interest rates, you charge them. And then they introduce, so as to, as it were, shock expectations over the long run, they introduce an explicit yield curve control regime, which was a promise by the Bank of Japan over the long run to ensure that the yield on the 10-year Japan Treasury bond would be zero within a band of uh, a quarter of a percent, which in finance market speak is 25 25 basis points. So the idea was that within give or take a quarter of a percentage point, the yield on a 10-year Japanese bond would be zero. And this is a policy they have pursued through greater and greater buying of 10-year bonds, such that now, essentially, the 10-year market and the 10-year bond is a sort of standard. It's your go-to treasury market uh, in the world, the world over. In Japan, is basically paralyzed. It doesn't function anymore because the Bank of Japan is not just a whale in a bathtub. It's like a super whale in a bathtub. There's really no one else in that market anymore. So they've, they, it's, a, it's really created a total zombie situation in that market. And this was sort of bizarre in and of itself. I mean, the, the, the Bank of Japan is moving towards owning almost 50% of all outstanding public debt. And Japan's public debt is over 260% of GDP. So this is financial engineering to the max, which the Japanese have been engaged in. I mean, real 
out there the most dramatic kind of monetary policy. And then what happens, as we all know, in the last 12 months, 18 months, is that the inflation story completely pivots such that now the central banks the world over, in Europe and the United States in particular, are dealing with 10% inflation, now down to closer to 8 or less. And they are hiking interest rates really dramatically. And the question has been ever since, okay, when will the lead elephant of unconventional monetary policy, the Bank of Japan, change gears? When will it shift? Now, inflation in Japan is still not anywhere near our inflation level. So the Bank of Japan says, you know, it's gone just above 2%. We should be celebrating. That's been the aim all the way along. For 20 years, we've been trying to get there. The problem is the global ramifications of this, because the Bank of Japan continuing to pump means that it is completely out of line. There is a really large interest rate gap between Japan and the rest of the world. And the consequence of that is that the yen, the the Japanese currency, plunges. Now, again, you might say this will be great for exporters, which it is to a degree. But on the other hand, it creates huge ruptions in the global financial system because over the years, Japanese investors have gone looking for investment opportunities all over the world other than Japan, And so if interest rates are moving and Japanese interest rates could suddenly go off zero and the yen would then reverse what has been an absolutely spectacular fall over the last 12 months, no one really quite knows what happens when that happens. And so this is the one of the big imponderables. And the big news just before Christmas was the Bank of Japan announced that it was widening the band. So we're not talking like, you know, a sudden huge increase in interest rates. What we're talking about is the Bank of Japan saying that yield curve control, which we continue to maintain, that yield curve control is now within a band, not of a quarter of a percentage point, but of half a percentage point. So then the question is, what does this really mean? And that's what's been roiling the markets, at least to some extent. It didn't turn out to be quite the drama, but but then we haven't actually seen a departure from yield curve control yet. So that's the question. And and it sounds technical. And it, yeah, I mean, it is clearly quite technical. Um, but it is one of the big stories to watch um, in, you know, in the in the financial pages of, of your daily newspaper. Just so I understand the, the implications that you were just alluding to, it sounds like then as a result of this kind of change that more investment could pour into Japan, and that would mean investment being drawn away from other places? In other words... Precisely. Yeah. Okay. So that places that are currently now receiving investment may be missing that that available investment in the coming year. Precisely. And those places include the United States. They include Europe. Because as Japanese pension funds and life insurers and the postal savings system in Japan have looked for assets that yield more than zero or even negative yields, and the Japanese central bank has been telling you, don't look here because we are committed to yield curve control, they have obviously just gone looking for other sorts of deals. And that, that that's complicated because then you take an exchange risk and the yen fluctuates against the dollar and the euro. So it's always a complicated balance. And whatever interest rate advantage you gain by investing in Europe and the US can be compensated by the cost of hedging against exchange rate fluctuations. Generally speaking, of course, when the yen goes down, you do well off that, but sometimes the yen will rise and then you're in trouble. And so the nightmare scenario, and it is a nightmare scenario, it's you know, it's finance fiction, it's kind of the horror scenario. It's not likely to play out like this, but the thing that worries the markets is a scenario in which the Japanese abruptly end yield curve control, the, the yen spectacularly reverses direction. A whole bunch of trades premised on the idea that interest rates remain at zero and the yen continues to fall are reversed out of very dramatically. 
And part of that then entails selling of hundreds of billions of European sovereign debt and American treasuries. And that's a kind of nasty ripple effect that really no one would like to see in the financial markets. Yeah, I'm interested in this symbolic level, you know, thinking about the Bank of Japan as yeah, the symbol of unconventional policy and what happens when it becomes conventional. But I guess we should probably shift to the last of the stories that you flagged, Adam, and that is the possibility of African debt crises. I was thinking about this, and, and I do feel like there were predictions of these debt crises that they were going to be arriving this year once the Fed started raising its own interest rates and the dollar started rising in the wake of that. We haven't heard or seen those headlines yet, but have the debt crises now, in fact, finally arrived? Yeah, I think there's clearly a risk of crying wolf here. Um, the you know the the epic emerging market or low income or frontier market debt crisis that many of us anticipated already in 2020, to be honest, um, you know, has failed to materialize in that form, in part because we've seen it coming and tried to stop it, in part because the countermeasures adopted by the rich world, notably in 2020, with the absolutely epic central bank stimulus, just drove money in towards the lower income countries. So several African debtors were still able to borrow earlier this year. The other, the other risk, of course, when talking about Africa, um, it is just to generalize about a hugely complex situation. It's 54 countries, 1.2 billion people. Um, it's hugely varied and complex. But there are some common denominators, right? And, and the interest rate bump is really the one. And though interest rate increases have been foreshadowed for a while, we're now really looking at the reality of it. And the average yield, the cost of borrowing or at least refinancing African debt has doubled um, in the last six to nine months or so. And, and that, in their case, means a bump of 6% because they borrow at you know, much larger, much higher rates than, than advanced economies. So we're talking about a really significant increase in the cost of borrowing. So that takes them, in many cases, to well over 10%. And um, in many cases, they're simply shut out of the market. There has, as far as I'm aware, been no significant African bond issue in the second half of 2022. So it's not just a price effect. There's also quantity rationing going on. They simply can't access um, capital markets. And that matters a lot. Um, and why we're so worried um, is that since the early 2000s, when there was the major debt cancellation initiative, the funding of low-income countries in Africa in particular has moved increasingly towards new sources of finance. And the one that we've heard an awful lot about, of course, is Chinese uh, lending by policy banks, essentially public-private partnership type banks in China, which have been doing one belt, one road style development. And that has mattered for some African countries. Um, but across the board, the more significant thing is the rise in borrowing from private markets uh, in the West and, and in, you know, in the global, in the, in the developed world. And that was a very deliberate policy fostered by the West insofar as the West has had a development policy for Africa. It's been to make them ready for the private capital market. And now the private mar capital market is shutting. So the reason why we're so, as it were, on edge about this issue is that it's a test of an entire development model and the only development model that the West really has to credibly offer to counter the the the, the model being offered by, by China. And to be clear, again, the lending over the last 10 years through private finance has been larger than that offered by China. So we're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars which are at stake here. And we are now beginning to see the effects. So estimates vary, but a dozen plus African countries are at risk of, you know, immediate stress testing. 
And the headlines to track are the standout success story cases because they're important in their own right. Ethiopia is a giant country with 118 million population, uh, but also because they shape the narrative about Africa. And the narrative is not just a sort of journalistic shorthand. It drives money, right? Um, money is driven by investors chasing a story. And there was a good news story about Africa, which is what drove the money. And it anchored on a series of good examples of ra relatively rapid economic growth. And those were preeminently Ghana, Kenya, and Ethiopia. And all three of those, and this is why the current situation is really alarming, all three of those countries are now in varying degrees of, of stress. Um, so Ghana has in fact defaulted on um, its outstanding private debt and is looking for a 30% haircut, a very significant concession from its creditors and is negotiating an IMF program. Kenya, um, which is more than usually dependent on Chinese money, is looking to renegotiate its Chinese loans. And Ethiopia, which is, of course, exiting from a civil war, is also in talks with the IMF. And so that's, I think, what makes the current situation um, really worrying is that scattered across, and this is typical of Africa reporting, right, the sort of relatively random noise about here's a case, here's a case, here's another case. Oh, well, it's Africa. If you focus on the core cases that matter from the point of view of the economic narrative, all three of those sub-Saharan African success stories are in trouble right now. And, and beyond them, the Malis, the Chads, Zambias of this world are also in, in trouble too. But you could shrug and say, well, that's perhaps not surprising given, for instance, the state of insurgency in, in the Sahel belt. But for, for Kenya, Ethiopia, and Ghana to be on the rack is, is really big news. Now, is this a story that is going to drive a global financial meltdown? No, it isn't, right? So why does this matter? It matters because there is a huge human story here, uh, 1.2 billion people whose development is at stake. And Africa is, of course, unfortunately, more and more a concentrated region of human misery. So of the 690 million people worldwide who live on less than $1.90 per day, so this is the absolute poverty benchmark, 460 million people live in Africa of that group. So two thirds of the absolutely poor people in the world live in Africa. So some of the no, not some of, the most vulnerable people in the world will be shaken by these financial crises, even if they do not shake the PIMCOs, the bond-holding um, aristocrats of, of the North. So that is one reason. And from that spiral, security concerns, you know, state failure, and the ability of local states, relatively better off local states like Kenya, for instance, to intervene to stabilize what's going on, going on in its neighbor DRC depends on Kenya's finances being relatively functional. And if they're not, then the funding for the peacekeeping operations the Kenyans might be involved in is no longer there. And you know one thing leads to another. So that's one dimension of this. And the other is perspective. I mean, Africa is the great center, the great driving hub of global demographic development now. And it will be for the foreseeable future. We don't know what the you know horizon is into the second half of this century, but for the next 20 to 30 years, it's baked in. And Africa's population is rapidly surging towards 2 billion and more. And we, it's crucial that there is a development, development model in place that offers that huge surge of young people, talented, dynamic, mobilized Africans, the chance of development. So what we need, and this is crucial to say, you know, it's not less debt, but more debt. You know, why? Because they need more capital. They need more investment. Debts are assets, right? The counterpart to a debt when things go right is investment and an asset. And those people, those hundreds of millions of people, this will be the largest group of young workers, not just, you know, regionally, but in the world 
by 2050. They desperately need investment. And if we can't organize it by means of functioning private capital flows, what is our answer? Because, you know, if anyone anticipates the trillions of dollars per annum which are needed here, if that's not going to come from private markets and the private markets are failing in the way in which they currently are, we don't have an answer in the West. And it's China can't provide that from public I mean, finances, even if it was minded to. And, it, you know, it's actually pulled back very dramatically. The terrifying scenario that otherwise looms is that Africa remains the one continent where development fails to happen in a sustainable way, because in Asia it really is. And then the poverty problem becomes synonymous with Africa and all of the absolutely toxic and disastrous late racialized visions of hierarchy and inequality that, that dog us um, become emphasized, re-emphasized and, and materially real. And that that is a disaster beyond, beyond describing, right? You know, that would be a total failure of, of, on our part collectively not to be able to demonstrate the possibility of sustainable development um, for, for Africa's population as well. And so those headlines are scattered as they are about the cases like Ghana and Kenya and Ethiopia. They, they really, really matter. Well, that was a tour de force on the situation in Africa. I don't know how much of that is likely to come to pass next year, but even the, the likelihood that some of it could is uh, sobering, uh, certainly to think about. But we will leave it there for now and otherwise talk to you next week. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It is produced by Laura Rossbrow Tellum and Rob Sachs. Our social media manager is Claudia Tady. The executive editor of FP Podcasts is Dan Efron. This show is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested not just in Adam Twos, but news and analysis from around the world, consider subscribing. Ones and Twos listeners even get a 15% discount. Just go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and use the promo code Twos at checkout. That is T-O-O-Z-E. And listeners, as always, we love hearing your feedback. You can send us voice messages on the Ones and Twos homepage on foreignpolicy.com or you can email us podcasts at foreignpolicy.com or tweet us. That's at Ones and Twos Pod. Thanks very much for listening, and we will see you back in your feed next week.